Hello? Sup? What are we talking about today? I have no idea. Can <laughs> talk about how great that last podcast was? <laughs> did you listen all the way through it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I feel like we said too much dumb stuff. Oh, wait. Hang on, let me close this door. It's probably making more noise than necessary. There was something I did want to bring up to you about organization. Oh, yeah, God is dead. What about him? Well, so, you know, we do have a lot of moral anxiety about the systems that we use. Like, you have less than most people, but most people, I've noticed, have meaningfully more anxiety about their systems and their lives. And, like, like, you know the stall bars that I installed and then you installed? Yeah. See, I don't think I would have done that if we hadn't become friends. That's pretty much exactly what I want to hear, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah, because it's fun, and, like, it's more free. Um, Like, I have less anxiety about people thinking I'm weird. Now that we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's... See, that's, that's a lesson that I'm surprised anyone would be able to take away from that. And it, it's weird because the only, the only obvious surface-level justification for it is that though I am weird, what I do works. And the problem is that's, that's related to the adage method to my madness, which is so cliched that I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, if that's what it manifests as, I guess that's just how it is. No, you really enjoy things as they come, you know, like even when you're suffering, usually not all the time, but usually you find a way for it to be interesting to you that you're suffering. It was my birthday resolution this year to do that. So, yeah, which was, which I couldn't, I I couldn't have just done out of the blue. I don't think that would have worked. I think I've pushed myself into that, um, largely a result of the fur community. If I had to guess, I mean, there's, um, I don't, I don't know which it actually comes up in the discussion. I think the discussion actually just went up on the log. I don't, yeah, I think I pushed it to the log, uh, from, I put the panel up in, in uncut form and, awesome. and it's funny cause there's a, there's a, um, a discussion, an argument, if you will, between Vinny and Mike about the nature of the community and the way that it's changed and their concerns about the community just like i i will acknowledge that there are people that are causing problems but my ability to shut out the the creep and the corruption at the fringes of the community is apparently just it, I, I, it just does not phase me at all like i am perfectly capable of staying away from the toxic elements of it and not bemoaning their existence in a way that a lot of people don't seem to manage. Mm. Um, and I, it's weird because that doesn't, that doesn't feel like something I'm, I would be naturally good at, but maybe if I look back through, maybe that is actually a historical phenomenon. I just didn't notice, but I feel like I used to be that way and I'm not now. I don't know because I think you're not, you're not really attached to people being good. That could run a couple ways. You gotta, you gotta draw that one out. 
<laughs> well, you don't really demand uh, that people around you are moral or people in your community are moral, and you don't really expect them to be that way. So you're not offended when they're not that way. It has nothing to do with you when they're that way or not that way. I suppose. I mean, it's certainly disappointing. Um, and I do what I can to indirectly influence that, which thankfully, like you just mentioned with the stall bars, apparently works okay, um, at least over time um, in certain <laughs> cases. But no, I suppose not. I wonder if that just has to do with the way that I try to control the environment that I'm in. It might tie into that. I'd have to, I have to think about that a lot harder. How do you try to control the environment you're in? Yeah, totally and completely all the time. I mean, my house is structured the way it is. The people who come into my house are the people they are. Um, I, everything about the way, I mean, I bought a set of noise canceling headphones and cannot believe I waited so long to do so because they're awesome. Um, they're yet another way that I can tamper the, uh, the static. I actually, uh, did that get mentioned? No, this actually, this whole conversation ties pretty well to the Zen panel in some ways, although it, it ties to a, it ties to a conversation that I had after it about fursuiting. Cause it turns out that, um, and this might just be a function of the fact that I'm the only one of my friends who has, who is actually on the spectrum that I talk to about this kind of stuff. Um, that part of what makes fursuiting good for me is the sensory deprivation side of it. I mean, uh, Mike has specifically talked about, and I may, I may actually bring him on the podcast to talk about it at some point. Cause being, I, I think it would be an interesting gateway to drag him into it. But, um, he, he tried to assert that, that being sensual with someone, not necessarily sexual, but at least sensual with someone is, is mathematically better out of fursuit because the contact is better. And, and that so underplays the inter-emotional side of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that is almost the whole thing for me. I mean, that's the difference between even sleeping with someone you have a crush on and sleeping with somebody random. Like, when you're genuinely attracted to the person or interested in the person or you kind of like them, it, like, makes the all of the small sensations, like, way bigger. Like, when you're sitting right close to somebody that you really, really, really like and you can feel their body heat and, like, all you can think about is their body heat and you are paying attention to them breathing and whatever, like, that's a meaningfully different experience that, than you would have with somebody you're just, like, mildly attracted to or, like willing to sleep with right well and it's even it's even more extreme in my case because i have the hypersensitivity that comes with asperger syndrome um mm-hmm. the the latent level of static that i get from the environment is so high that even when i'm in a situation with someone that i like that can occasionally be overwhelming in a way that makes it less enjoyable mm-hmm. um and that's why i the, the fursuit actually dampens it to just the right degree i can't see as well i can't hear as well I can't feel as well necessarily, and that actually um, th- that actually allows me to concentrate better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ends up being that ends up being really really useful. A lot of the, not all the time. I mean, occasionally 
there there is definitely something to the censorious side of things, but I get more than enough of that living in the real world. Legit. Yeah. Legit. So maybe that's why you have like a higher ability to tolerate suffering is that that's a regular part of your life. The flattening part of it. Yeah. It's, I was suspecting that when I was, when I was thumbing through that initially is that it just, yeah, it all, it's all dangerous. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it all fits into the metaphor. So I have to use other ways to judge it. Yeah, I had, I mean, because you know how I can't leave my house, basically. Yeah. So, uh, and part of it is because, and so some people theorized with me that, um, that that is because it's a sensorily, like, overwhelming experience. But when I was in, when I was on the farm, like, a couple years ago, like, I could leave the house just fine. Like, as long as I wasn't going into society, which was overwhelming. Like, as long as I was just, like, in the woods. It was completely fine. No problem. And it's not like you don't have a lot of noise, like, in the woods. Or that your threshold doesn't change really fast. So, I think, like, a big part of it is the danger evaluation. So, my question is, like, is that different in nature versus in human environments? I would have to think about that a little harder. I think, I think just noise is enough to annoy me. Uh, the so- adding the social element definitely makes it worse, but it's not. Um, it really is just kind of the unpredictability of the environment that's enough to get me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't mind hearing the animals skittering or whatever. You know that didn't bother me. None of that disturbed me the way that people disturbed me. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I'm probably a little more susceptible susceptible to both. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I'll have to, I'll have to think on that part. I mean, it does. It makes some sense beyond the control thing that I would be, that I would be getting better at suppressing that. But mm. I don't know. I've seen you have days where you like really enjoy that kind of overstimulation. Well, yeah, if I lean into it, I can I can do that. That's actually, yeah. I mean, being a furry ends up being that way in a lot. It, it's sort of a controlled burn that way. Um, and depending on what I'm doing, if I, if I want to indulge in it and I feel safe enough to do so, I can do it. But I can push myself over that threshold on accident really, really easily. So I still have to be careful about it. Um, yeah. I mean, I've... I've managed to I've managed to move the floor up quite a bit so that I can function in more erratic environments but I still absolutely there there's a point where if I just go over the top of it my subconscious flares up and I completely lock up So like you can't uh I can't think straight I can't talk like I have to I have to just leave wherever I am <laughs> Yeah, I've had that experience. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I have a hard time communicating this to people, actually, because it's like, because people are like, well, you know, if you just do it, you get better at doing it, and then I'll be fine. But it's like, no, not exactly. Because if I fuck it up, I really fuck it up. And then it can take months for me to be able to do anything again. 
and okay, like my, my recovery time's a little better than that, but <laughs> it doesn't take quite that. Well, long. it depends on what the event was, you know. Like my deepest fear is like being on a plane and then having that kind of shutdown happen. I don't know that it ever has happened on a plane to me. Well, welcome to a new fear. Yeah, I guess. I'm trying to think what the most emotional thing that's happened to me on a plane even is. I mean, I've broken down on a plane, but that was just, that was a post-con depression thing. So that's not, that's not particularly extraordinary and it didn't really lead to anything. Claustrophobia doesn't seem to hit me very hard. You know, I didn't even realize I was claustrophobic until Ian said so. That asshole ruined <laughs> everything. And then everyone I talked to where I was like, I think I might be claustrophobic. They're like, yeah, you definitely, you absolutely are. <laughs> they didn't know they were hiding it from you. Yeah. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> You've developed this new unsuperpower. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. But I do feel like I'm making progress on the phobias and anxiety overall. Like, I've been pretty calm this last week. What from? But I have no idea. I have no idea what happened. I've just been pretty sage. I think like the... What? Aftermath of Thanksgiving. I'm just trying to... uh, Because you were saying you were basically bored of being anxious. Yeah. Yeah, while you were here, I was a mess. You remember. I was just, like, weeping and breaking down, and maybe that was it. Maybe it was, like, breaking down while you were here, and now I feel, like, fine. I don't know. Whatever I can do to help, I suppose. (laughs) But, um... Oh, yeah, but I did want to talk about, like... so, So your judgments... Of the situation that you're in are not judgments of the situation morally. They're purely based on like how you feel. And like, I don't think that's like controlling in the way that people normally imagine controlling. You know, like you're not trying to make the situation into something it isn't. Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, not. Not directly. Yeah. I will I will influence it in a direction, but if it's possible for me to simply disassociate, I would rather do that. Yeah. Like, and all of the examples you gave are just, like, reducing sensory load on yourself. You're not requiring, like, the world to change to accommodate you. Mm, I mean, I do that. I try to not involve other people in that process. I try to build... Because there's there's a couple ways to use the notion of adaptation. Um, I don't I don't exert more willpower. I exert more. Um, I I put more constraints on my environment to make it more hospitable to me. Um, and to the degree I can, I make that um, I make that an agnostic effect on the people around me. Mm-hmm. Which is a little more work, but I think it's generally worth the extra effort. 
Yeah, so that's what I'm saying is that you're not controlling in the in the classical sense of controlling. I suppose not. Yeah. Only in the finer, more literary sense. <laughs> We're in the yeah, in the conventional sense of controlling. Yeah. So I don't really buy being controlling as a, a motivation or reasoning for how you are. Not over other people. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to adjust my environment to the degree I need to. I just... Social conflict is so rarely effective for me that I just... I stay out of it. That's true. That's true. You seem to really hate social conflict. Yeah. No, I will... I will de-escalate that kind of stuff. Unless it is an environment in which people seem game to have at it, I will I will deliberately de-escalate things as rapidly as possible. So when you're at my house you don't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well it depends it depends on the environment. Sometimes sometimes it's better off to uh, hash and when I say de-escalate and d- avoiding conflict, I do that in I do that in extremely direct ways. I mean, this feels like it's contradictory to what I just said to some degree, but I mean, when when there seems to be a problem I turn and look at the problem quite specifically with the intent of resolving it as rapidly as possible without generating other problems. Um, And that's almost always a matter of clarification Um, because miscommunication is the (laughs) when when all parties actually mean well, it's almost impossible that a lack of clarification won't fix some of the problems. And if it doesn't, it means that the people talking are not actually as well-meaning to each other as they say they are. Yeah. But that's just me being mathematical about relationships, so. And nobody likes that, so. No, that's not true. That I think that's a rule that kind of makes sense, you know? Oh, I, I agree it makes sense. It's just that a lot of people attempt to gloss over it. It's the notion of social capital being judged differently from other forms of material capital just doesn't make sense to me. It, it makes it that much harder to, uh, it makes it that much harder to evaluate what you should do. I mean, the, the, the notion that people are friends for, for no reason at all is, is just, it's a stupid way to operate. You don't have to, you don't have to run equations on people's, value to you to determine who you should hang out with at any given time i mean that makes that falls into other traps that are not even even if we're being perfectly utilitarian about it that's a stupid way to go about life because that's that's impoverishing to yourself um let alone the fact that the utilitarian argument only works if you actually know all the numbers but to believe that those forces are not at play is delusional Mm -hmm. yeah so I think in an instance where, um, okay, let's say you have two people, right, who are arguing, and you're not one of them, and you try to be like, hey, can you both, like, please clarify what you're saying? Because I think your point of confusion is not that you're at odds, but that you are, because you have the same goals, but rather that you're not communicating clearly. Can you please do that? And both people do that. But um, despite the clarification, there is still a conflict, right? There are a couple possibilities. 
that come out of that. Right. One is that um, they are genuinely at odds, even though they have good intentions and they're there in good faith. They genuinely have opposing um, beliefs or ideas or uh, understandings of what's good. Right. And that's that places them in a genuine conflict and not just a um, social conflict. Right. The other possibility is, is that like they started in good faith, but then they can't proceed until someone has um, their pointing knowledge or like something specific needs to be resolved before they can feel comfortable that the other person is there in good faith um, and like return to the baseline of cooperation. I think both of those instances revolve around ambiguities that you either have to resolve or acknowledge. Um, Because again, if you're going to assume good faith on the part of the other person, which I will admit as a, as a parenthetical is something that you can only do once you have enough agency over your life, not to see people as enemies because you have the option to (laughs) ignore them if they happen to turn hostile to you, which is something you do have to, you, you have to develop and gain over time. If you don't, just have it naturally um it's it's certainly a form it's it is a form of privilege that you accrue um there is something about what you're talking about that is ambiguous and it's possible that you can't resolve it um thanks to a value judgment or thanks to a lack of information um but if that's the case then the argument's over anyway totally Totally. I'm just saying that you can't conclude that people are not there in good faith. And, like, the downfall of, like, a mechanical view of a social interaction is that it doesn't always account for the fact that, like, social uh, social systems are dynamic. And social interactions are dynamic. So people don't remain in the same position the entire time. Sure. But... They generally tend to be, they tend to be close enough unless someone is, unless someone is in fact playing social games, which I basically ignore as a point of, uh, not as a point of principle, but just out of mechanical necessity because I don't track that fast. Um, yeah. so I just, I, I completely ignore those. Um, it's the notion, uh, Cynicism falls into that trap a lot. Um, cynicism is born out of a desire to seem m- more wise with no information, and it's not, uh, it's completely ineffective on me at this point. It used to be much more effective. I used to use it all the time. Um, and it just, it slowly wore down on me as being a virtually immoral way to look at things. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is, but I think there is like a another point of view on human behavior that, like, I think one of the problems with cynicism is that it assumes like it still requires the conventional framework to uh, for evaluating something. So let's say you're you're cynical about the world um, because you think that. Um, sorry, that's a bad example. I should probably have a cigarette before I keep talking. <laughs> But there is something there that uh, is what I was trying to point to earlier as the reason why you might not um, 
be as uh, disturbed by um, corruption on the on the fringe of the system, right? So, something is corrupt when it's not what it's supposed to be, right? The idea is that there's this perfect underlying pure uh way that things are supposed to be and uh they have somehow been corrupted right so you might say that corruption makes you cynical so when you when you say that that corruption makes you cynical what you're saying is that like i would prefer things to be perfect and pure but i acknowledge that they're not so what i'm saying is that requires the reference to the perfect and pure still you know like, so if you're cynical about love, right, you're saying, you know, well, if you talk to somebody who's cynical about love and you say, why are you cynical about love? They'll be like, well, nothing lasts forever. Right. So they have this idea that love is a thing that should last forever. Right. So I think you're, you're post cynical about human behavior overall. Like, as a rule, and that makes things like corruption on the fringes of your community much easier to deal with. Because you're not holding people to, like, what they should be in uh, the same way. I suppose not. I mean, I, I guess I mostly... <laughs> there's, there's a degree to which the cynicism hardens into stoicism that I think probably has a lot to do with it as well. So you still would be affected by it, but you practice not being moved by it. It's not that you've changed the framework. Um, no, the framework's absolutely in place. Um, but I have, I have a much. I, I think I have at least a much more. Uh, no, it's actually that's okay. I'm, I'm okay saying this. I am much more naturally stoic than other people. Yeah, that's I, what I'm getting at, and I think it's partly because you are less motivated by con- conventional ideas of how things work. I, th- that is also certainly true. Um, my, my path to stoicism is a lot, lot shorter than most people's just because my motivations are a lot less natural. That's an interest. <laughs> Your motivations are less natural. Yeah, absolutely. What is- what is the natural motivation and what's an unnatural motivation and how come yours are unnatural? Mine are less natural because my brain was supposed to wire certain things that didn't all get hooked up correctly. And I've had to create a simulacrum of them using other bits. And every time you attempt to simulate something, it has to be based on other principles, which naturally makes it more naturally makes it more. Uh, it makes it more artificial. But in order for that to be effective, um, naturality doesn't necessarily mean good here, uh, as it very frequently doesn't. Um, It it means that I have to put in the work to make sure that what I'm doing is, in fact, adaptive as a substitute. Um, And Mm. I've had to do that for a lot of my social conventions. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that, that was mostly a complete thought. I think Asperger's is, is pretty natural, actually. Um, like, I don't know what its prevalence is, but I would be surprised if it wasn't, like, a pretty, like, standard... Um, I mean, it's it's comparatively common, but it... I mean, the the number of instances in which it causes problems, and, I mean... We can 
go down the rabbit hole of the degree to which culture matters in this argument. Um, but most of the time, Asperger's is comorbid with a lot of things people would rather, if they had been given the choice, not have done to them. Um, mm-hmm. So it it I'm fine calling it unnatural in that way. I mean, yes, it's natural. It occurs in X number of people in the population, um, most likely thanks to a chemical imbalance, most likely a testosterone one, given some of the other comorbidities. But it's, I mean, to call that to call that natural on that side of it is very different from calling the compensating mechanisms for trying to get back what was potentially lost there. I, I'm perfectly okay calling artificial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what you're talking about is like, Stuff that seems that's intuitive for other people is not unintuitive for you. So you figured it out using a different mechanism than normal. But I don't think that has anything to do with natural and unnatural. Um, Why are you specifically tied up on the word? I mean, yes, I agree. I could have used intuitive and unintuitive. Um, that they would they would be more or less synonymous with what I'm talking about here. I think Skype is coming yeah. out. I don't know that I. I don't think I heard your response. I didn't respond. Oh, I'm okay. like trying to think of how to formulate this in a way that isn't utterly offensive. I don't, um, I don't care. <laughs> well, I think that there is naturally some diversity in the uh, neurology of human population and that that is because i also i have a bunch of different beliefs on this but um and like i have a bunch of assumptions that may or may not be the standard assumptions depending on who you're talking to and what field they're in and what they're doing but i definitely believe in group selection versus like simple individual selection right oh go on i mean unless that's (laughs) <laughs> unless that's where you want no, to stop no, no, no. that's 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 a starting point right okay yeah no that's that's uh, fine i mean and the- like would you like even in this environment right there are some places where your skill set is more useful and some places where my skill set is more useful and like that's why we're a good team sure um, but the way right. that, that I, the degree of coincidence there and the fact that we don't get to choose and the fact that it tends to be, a, again, this is where it becomes the rabbit hole of acculturation as opposed to, as, and it's why abnormal psychology is a weird, is a weird thing because it's always a matter of thresholds and where you're at, um, but it um, the other way to look at it, if you don't specifically look at it as a, a group selection thing, which uh, it it could be, but the ar- the arguments for individual versus group selection are are variegated and strange. The because um, evolutionary psychology is variegated and strange, but odds it, for the most part, when you have it, it seems like for common disorders. The evolutionary explanation that makes the most sense to me is that whatever would happen if this imbalance happened the other way for common disorders, 
is probably worse than what happens if it had, for example, if if Asperger's syndrome is caused by I, I forget. I'll just make this up because I don't I don't remember what the current state of the consensus on this is. But say it is too much of chemical X in the second trimester. Um, the reasoning would be that if Asperger's syndrome is relatively common and you believe specifically in individual selection, um, that the penalty in fitness for a lack of chemical X in the second trimester outweighs the possibility, uh, it outweighs the danger of there being too much. And so there is a natural bias in favor of there being too much. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise it results almost certainly in a miscarriage. And we know that a lot of these balances happen because there are a lot of miscarriages, even in modern day. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to get a baby to <laughs> grow into a into an actual, or it's hard to get a fetus to grow into an actual baby correctly. Um, there's a lot of back and forth in that. So I have like so much to talk about <laughs> on this topic. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. This is this is why I, this again. I call it a rabbit hole. It's it's its own. I mean, it's its own field of study. So okay, let me just get a cup of coffee and have a cigarette. I, and I, I'll be I don't right. know that we have enough time. <laughs> oh, I set aside two hours to talk to you. I got. I have about half an hour left, and then I need to, I need to go do work stuff. But um, okay. I mean, okay. if you want to slate this conversation, we can do that too. This is a much better conversation than the one we were having earlier. What epigenetics? Yeah, I mean, it's not even totally in the realm of epigenetics, right? Like, I think the conversations about the na- the conversation about the naturalness of Asperger's is an interesting conversation. And I'm surprised that you think it's unnatural because the last time I thought about this seriously was when I was um, in my neuro class. Oh no no no! Uh, I, again, th- there's a there's a differentiation here. I'm not talking. I'm not speaking of the unnaturalness of Asperger's syndrome. I'm speaking of the unnaturalness of the coping mechanisms. Okay. It's the, it's the attempt to facsimilate, um, social intuitions that don't exist. That's the unnatural part. I mean, Asperger's syndrome is completely natural. It happens. It happens through a means that we have no control over. I mean, by the, by any meaningful definition, it's un it's natural. It's that the way that I am talking to you and pretending to use my face and using inflect, like that is all, that's artificial. That's not natural. I'm trying to think about what happens when you shut down and you actually still emote and inflect. Um, I, I don't. When I shut down, my face is completely blank. Um... I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I read it according to context, but you do look upset and you are still responding to things. And I, I guess you have like two faces when you're really upset. I mean, my, there's like, oh, well, yeah, the blank face and the thinky face. Yeah, I, I mean, I can believe that it twitches between one or two things, but I mean, when I'm my natural social state is a wreck. Like it doesn't like it's. It's a negative affect mumbling thing. It's not, it, it, it does not, re- it does not resemble this at all. Do you think you could still like get back to that state? 
if I mean, you were I like can trigger it, it's very unpleasant to do so, but you'd have to you'd you'd have to like make it happen by overstimulating yourself. Um actually you no, I guess that's true. I could probably just go into it. The problem is that going into it is a it's a feedback loop, so it's it's like, you know, smiling makes people happy, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it would be it would be deliberately making myself feel like shit. Um, which I'm not a huge fan of doing. So so I mean, I mean, I guess my question is like, when whenever we talk about this, we imagine it as like you have this baseline that is unemotive in like both of like your face and your tone, your voice, right? Um, and then you have this layer of artifice, which is your voice and your facial expressions that you put on top of it. Um, but the idea is that underneath it, there's still this this blank face and blank voice. Yeah. So I'm asking you if it would be possible for you to take off the artifice. If it's like another layer on top of it, then you should be able to just remove it. Right. Because it's something that's actively taking effort to maintain and put on. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't take much effort and it feels much better to not do so. The natural state is very uncomfortable. Which again, that's where the danger comes in. That's the the set of things that make up the syndrome of Asperger's is so, very unpleasant. So even when you're by yourself, you're still um, putting on this artifice, or is yeah, it totally absolutely? It's it is a purposive thing that I have to do. Um, and it's easy for me to do now on a regular basis, and it's part of the reason that it's easy now that I've sort of mastered it. Um, it's easy for me to maintain attention and focus in a way that I didn't used to be capable of when I was a younger child. <coughs> but no, I abs- it's, it's absolutely, it's a constant rededication, and the dedication pays off um, in the form of not falling back into a loop of just more or less general uselessness and mathematical fixation um, that a lot of people, a lot of young kids with Asperger's syndrome fall into. And it's, it's a very uncomfortable state, even outside of the social friction. It's the places, the places in which it's pleasurable are very egoistic and they're very obsessive. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not fun. It's not, it's, it, and it's part of the reason I'm, I'm okay remaining calling it an abnormality because the ways in which Asperger's syndrome can manifest as being a good thing require effort on the part of the people doing them. Um, it's not a, the, the fact that people with Asperger's syndrome run technology companies does not compensate for the fact that they have massive social problems. Like that's not, that, that's not a good trade-off. Okay, well, I mean, I think my dad definitely has Asperger's. and But he doesn't really seem to suffer socially. And, like, part of it is that he's, like, over 50 now. Um, but, you know, some things like evaluating the people around him. Like, I'm much more judgmental of his friends than he is of his friends and colleagues, right? So some things that were, like, really obvious to me that... uh certain people were untrustworthy or whatever, uh, were like, were less obvious to him. 
Um, so that's definitely a detriment. But in terms of his inner experience, I think he has an extremely enjoyable life. That's entirely possible. I mean, it's not it's not impossible to enjoy your life with Asperger's. It's the bar for it seems to be quite a bit higher. Mm-hmm. Because you deal with chaos a lot worse. Gotcha. Do your do your friends with Asperger's also feel this way, generally speaking, or is this like based mostly on your experience? Um, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people with Asperger's syndrome. They exhibit all the things that I do. I haven't talked to many of them like about this specifically. For one thing, it's a um, awkward topic to talk about with most people. Um, yeah. But the um, but just by mannerism, it's. It's ob- it, I can tell what they're thinking because they look like me when they're doing these things, um, which is a weird thing to work around because I didn't I don't know that I knew anyone with Asperger's syndrome growing up, which is probably part of the reason I got over it faster than a lot of people do because I went to a hard I that's one thing I am I I'm pretty sure that the fact that I didn't get diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome was in fact a good thing for me. Yeah. Um, because I think the current state of the medical, un- I'm pretty sure the current state of therapeutic understanding of Asperger's syndrome is a disaster based on a handful of anecdotes I've heard about the way that people are treated for it. Um, not even chemically, but even just socially. Um, the methods that they use seem absolutely counterproductive. They seem to assume that you you cannot function properly and that you can't facsimilate functioning properly, which is, uh, that's horrible. No, a lot of it is just abuse, right? Like a lot of it is just straight up abuse because it comes from this behavioral paradigm or behaviorist paradigm. Um, so they, you know, the, the way that children with, um, Asperger's are treated in schools when where that once they've been identified as children with Asperger's is sometimes extremely horrifying. Um, and that's why one of the reasons I'm interested in investigating what part of this is is okay anyway, you know, so that like, you know, maybe there's not a lot that needs to change in order for people to um because I've seen things like like social skills training stuff, um, which has an overly mechanical view of what happens in a social interaction. So you because you could follow something down to the letter and still get it wrong, right? The idea that I mean, like obviously there are some things which are genuinely social skills which should be taught and can be taught, like how to be a better listener. I think that's something you could learn, right? Yeah. Like it's not like. Um, but things like um, some of the scripts that they give people for in social skills training is kind of like, I don't know, they just don't seem that great. And uh, other times they, you know, encourage you to be polite when you should be, you know, maybe standing up for yourself or there's an argument to be made that you could stand up for yourself in um, certain situations. But the social skills training says to like, this is how you be polite, you know, and you've been like threatened and cajoled your whole, uh, throughout your education, 
to be polite in these kinds of situations and this is how you be polite. So it's like, and that's not great. Um, people interacting with computers to work on language skills instead of like person to person interactions, which could work better in some cases. And like, there's a, there are a lot of problems with this. I will send you a lot of reading about this if you're willing to do it. Nah, it's okay. You can read about it. Fuck. I've got the, I've got the other side of it. I've got the good <laughs> side of it. All right. I don't know how useful any of this, how publishable any of this conversation <laughs> is. It's fine. <laughs> <sighs> That's okay. Should we plan a little bit for our conspiracy thing? Yeah, probably. Um, so the flow of it will be, I mean, the, fir- the first episode will be a natural shit show. We just need a topic, basically, and we'll figure out what makes, what is and isn't worth talking about within that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, do you have a particular topic in mind yet? So this is about um, oil strikes. Um and it says, by refusing to negotiate and prolonging the strike, the large firms were able to both defeat the workers and put the smaller producers out of business. In fact, rumors circulated that Standard Oil had financed the 1904 strike with this dual aim. So that's um, Standard Oil in Galicia. We can start with that. That's an interesting one, right? I, I have no idea how we can investigate that without a... Um, but maybe we should start with a popular one. I don't know. No, we should start with one like that because that introduces so many random little things that we're going to have to deal with at some point anyway. I mean, speaking to an era we're not part of, it still has something to do with oil. It says, no, that's fine. We can totally use that. I also think we should be more specific when we can help it anyway. Um, yeah. Because being more general, is actually it's harder. There's too much to talk about. Um, and then I also want to talk about the um, spread of crack cocaine in black communities by the CIA. Like that one. That one's going to be fucking impossible. <laughs> we should save that really? for week two. We can do it. That's fine. We we can totally do it. But we should we should narrow that down to one incident if we can. Yeah, because then it has a truth value, right? Yeah. And then we can talk around that one thing. Okay. Yeah, find find an incident of dubious <laughs> repute and we'll we'll search around it to see what is and is not valuable about it. Okay. Well, I took an image of that, so we're going to try to figure out whether or not Standard Oil funded this strike. Yeah. Exactly. See, that's specific enough that we can look into it and there's dynamics to it that we can rate their plausibility and their historicity like there's a lot more to go on there um if we talk about the fbi's involvement in crack cocaine that is so broad that cia the theory is that um i'm familiar there's i've heard i've again i've already heard a lot about that i've never even heard of this standard oil thing which makes it inherently more interesting to me I listen to Joe Rogan. He talks about this shit all the time. So this is if if you need to know anything about or, or you, if you need to know less than you thought you did about uh, Tower Seven or Bigfoot or any of these uh, fine 
find History's Mysteries, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast provides it every single time. So, <laughs> um, okay, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I sent you the uh, yes, yeah. more information about the strike. I will investigate. Uh, when yes. do we want to do this? In two weeks. Okay, that's fine. We can do that. I'm so excited. <laughs> No, this should be silly. That's the first one. It's a very serious topic. Yeah, but it was so long ago. I mean, what ramifications could that possibly have in today's world of oil conspiracies? What difference does it make? There are absolutely no uh, oil conspiracies going yeah. on at the moment. No, I can, definitely I can see not. that with absolute certainty. Yeah, as you should. As a good American citizen, you should know that. <laughs>